Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. I'm always so excited when I feel as if what the Lord shares with me and how He speaks to me starts to make its way even into the message for the week. I'll tell you, as I was studying through Acts chapter 17 this week, yeah, there are parts of it. There's a lot going on in Acts 17, and you can start to turn there. But I wasn't quite sure, Lord, what, what is it that you have for us this week? What are we to take from this? And I can tell you that our time at the conference really confirmed that for me this week. And so to a degree, you'll get to hear a, a bit of what we studied over the last day and a half. And so as you make your way to Acts chapter 17, if you would, just agree with me in prayer here this morning. Father, we pause before we go to your word, and I thank you for the testimonies that have already been shared here today truth is, Lord, that that in and of itself could serve to be meditated on for some time here this morning. As we consider really the work that you do within our hearts and those that have shared here today, how you spoke to us, Lord, we know there's a personal responsibility for each of us, Lord, in how we come to you and allow you to work in our lives. And it's when you work in us individually, when we allow you to do that and we surrender to you, Lord, that we can see great and mighty things accomplished in your name. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning as we go to the Word, that, that we would see that, that we would receive what you have for us here today, that we would see the example that we have in the Apostle Paul and his passion and desire to share the Word with the lost, and how you worked and how you moved, and to have the reality this morning to know it, Lord, and to believe it, that you can still do this same work today, that we're not just called to play or to pretend to be the church, but to be it, Lord, to be the church, not a building not a denomination, but the church, followers of Jesus Christ who are faithfully following after you, surrendered to you and allowing you to work, Lord, in our lives. And so I pray for that work to happen here today, Lord, even now. We invite your spirit in, Lord, and pray that you dwell with us here and you'd speak and you'd move and you'd pierce the hearts and minds of each of us here today, Lord, that we'd leave different, more in love with you, following hard after you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, verse one. And remember, they had just come from Philippi. There was a great and mighty work that happened there. Remember the earthquake, and here you've got Paul and Silas who are in the inner prison there, and the Philippian jailer is to keep guard over them, and the earthquakes came, and they were miraculously released, yet they, they didn't run. They didn't go anywhere. They were able to preach the gospel to the Philippian jailer, and that then translated to his family, and we saw his family get saved. And so Great and mighty things are happening. And as they made their way from that area, we pick up here in verse 1, and it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And so they were again making their way from Philippi, and they traveled nearly 100 miles. That's sometimes the things that we forget too, is they didn't jump in their vehicle and ride on a nice paved road. No, they strapped up their sandals and they hoofed it, right? And almost 100 miles they traveled here. And so it just sounds so easy as they made their way through these cities and on their way to Thessalonica. 
But that in and of itself speaks of the desire and the heart on the part of the apostles that they would travel great lengths to make sure that they could get the word into the hearts of the lost. Paul is a man on mission. He's a spirit-led individual, and he doesn't waste any time in getting to work. It says that he arrived and he went into the synagogue, and what that tells us is that there was enough of a Jewish population there to warrant having a synagogue, and he went in. And the Word says that for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He invested in these people to establish them in the Word and to build a foundation for the church. Now, there are times in evangelism when All we have is a brief conversation with a stranger, the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with them, to share the gospel with them, albeit briefly, and pray that it would take root, that the seed that we sow there would take root and that someone else would come alongside them and and help to nurture that and to grow it. Yet there are then other times when we're afforded more time to invest, to build into something, to establish a foundation. And in the case here, a strong church was established. Just like the letter to the Galatians that we can read through to gain insight into what was going on in previous chapters of Acts that we covered, we can also read the first and second letter to the Thessalonians to gain more understanding of what is happening in the church and what was forming here. We can gain insight into the conversations they were having, the type of people that they were, how strong their faith was. To me, when I read the letters amongst many different things. What stands out to me is the benefit of what was afforded Paul when he established these churches, when he established the foundation that he did. And I want to read from the first part of 1 Thessalonians here in chapter 1, verses 2 through verse 10. It reads, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And so we have a very typical greeting from the apostle Paul to this church, letting them know, we give thanks to you. We're praying for you remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And I want to emphasize that there in verse 7, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, Paul was intentional in establishing churches many times within prominent areas where the gospel would then advance and have an impact on the culture even when he wasn't there. Paul recognized that he wouldn't be able to do all of the work that was necessary. It was his job to go out and preach the gospel, to see the Lord change hearts and minds, and that we would multiply in that way. He would work very quickly to teach them sound doctrine, to mature them in the faith so that they could replicate the work. As we continue to read, it was very quickly that he began to discuss with them the idea of the rapture of the church. 
Christ's second coming. And he didn't hold back. He wanted to teach them. He wanted them to be knowledgeable within the Word. And in the same manner today, the church should be focused on quickly establishing believers and turning them loose in communities to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Far too much time today is sadly spent on the activities within the church and not the activity of the believer outside of the church. But that is changing. I firmly believe that is changing today within the church. Now, the idea of making disciples of Christ certainly implies a learning and a maturing in the faith, equipping believers. It is not to suggest that any activity within the church is unnecessary or wrong by any means, but the reality that to fulfill the Great Commission, we must go out, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, changing the world. And that's what we see happening here as we read on in verse 5. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Essentially, what they're saying there is Jason had to post bail. He had to pay to get out of prison. Sometimes it wasn't always beneficial to know and to house the Apostle Paul. You know, in the church today, we talk a lot about hospitality, and we like to host, and we like to have people in. Those of you that are gifted in that area, it is a gift. It's a gift to do that. But in this particular time, it wasn't necessarily what we think of today. It wasn't a potluck. You put your well-being, your safety, your life on the line, and that was the case here for Jason. But what we see happen here, first of all, is that the Jews, they became envious. Why were they envious? They could have had this too. They could have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They could have recognized that He was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Word of God. But for some time now, what was happening here is that the synagogue had been filled with God-fearing Gentiles. Those who said, you know what? I don't know about worshiping all of these other gods. This seems pretty out there, maybe. It seems pretty cumbersome. You know, there's no real form of absolute truth. They were God-fearing Gentiles. They said, I believe in the one true God. What they're saying makes sense. Now, they weren't Jewish legally. They weren't Jewish as a descendant was, but they were God-fearing Gentile believers that were coming to the synagogue. Now, it seems that since Paul had come to town and proclaimed the truth of the Word of God, that suddenly to them, it now all made sense. And they realized, and now were able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were able to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for them, they were just overjoyed, just like any believer today should be. But then they stopped going to the synagogue. And so the Jews that were there, noticing their dwindling numbers, didn't like that very much. They became envious. And so it's unfortunate that the Jews of the day were so blinded by their tradition and their religion that they could not see the truth of the fulfillment of their very own scriptures. And of course, that's the thing that's become apparent to us as we study through the Word of God. And we know they were not unique or alone in their disbelief. But we see within them a behavior that still exists today 
when we don't understand something, when we feel threatened by something. We often can act out rashly. We can make accusations. We can become angry instead of trying to understand what may be going on, what it is that God may be doing. And so they set out to put an end to this work. They set out to find them. And when they identified the house of Jason, they attacked it, and they attacked those who were inside, seeking to drag them out and throw them into jail, declaring that these are the ones who have turned the world upside down. What a compliment. What an affirmation. What a statement to the validity of the work that they were doing in the Lord. I can't help but read that and wonder to myself, is the same thing being said of the church today? Would people look at the church today and say, those are the people that are turning the world upside down. They're causing all these issues, speaking truth, right? If we think back, and this is some of what we covered here over the past couple of days, if we think back on the last great revival or move of God in our country, we think back to the Jesus movement of the late 60s and 70s, birthed out of a counter-cultural time. The Jesus movement was comprised of hippies who had begun to live differently than the generation before them. Some of you here experienced this very thing. The 60s and 70s were marked by a distrust of government, those in authority. There was a great outcry against racial and social injustices. There was a rise in activism and protest. In many ways, the country seemed incredibly divided. Does this sound familiar at all? And then came the Jesus movement, a mighty move of God that took this very generation and in proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, allowed them to find the identity, the hope, the meaning that they had been seeking. The drugs and the pleasure that had numbed the pain was now replaced with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And these very people came into the church in a miraculous way, took what many could argue was an apostate church back to the biblical foundations of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To no longer allow religion and legalism and the ways in which we were supposed to do church to get in the way of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you know the stories of Pastor Chuck as the Lord began to lay on his heart a ministry towards these very people and the opposition that he faced for how it was going to really change and transform everything they had known about what it meant to do church, all the way down to the dirty feet that would be coming in and ruining the carpet. And this is true. And do you know what Pastor Chuck challenged those very elders in the church regarding at that point in time? He said, well, if that's what your concern is, then rip out the carpet because we're bringing them in. Those who are at the men's conference this week, you get to experience firsthand some of those very men that came to know the Lord during that time. And we can think back and we can reflect on and we can sit here today in a Calvary Chapel, not that we exalt Calvary Chapel, but we can sit here today and think about our history and our roots and know that we're experiencing something that came out of this time. It was significant. But the reality for us is now is we can't sit here and look back. Some have tried to do that. Some have tried to sit here and look back and try and relive what it was that happened in that time. And we can't do that. God doesn't call us to do that. He calls us to move forward. So what we can recognize is that our culture is in the same way, shape, and form, ripe for revival again. And we pray, and we should. We pray, Lord, do it again. There is a generation today that is seeking in the same way. They're rising up 
In the same way, there is an outcry against many of the exact same things. And as a church, we can either say they're wrong and we don't like it or it's disruptive or whatever the case may be, or we can reach out and figure out a way to reach them with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want for us to be world changers, to get a hold of the culture in a way that perhaps we haven't before. But in order to do that, there needs to be a work within each of our own hearts individually first. Now, as we continue on here, and I'm going to move through this particular section fairly quickly because I think we pick up the same line of thought as we move into verse 16. We have this little trip that Paul takes here as they get out of Thessalonica because, well, Jason's safety is at risk. He posted bond. There was an agreement that there would be peace in the area. They thought it fitting at this point to move to the next town. And so in verse 10, we read, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. With all speed, they departed. So here, and we could spend a lot of time talking about Berea and the significance of what happened there and these particular people. And no doubt some of you have been in the Word, in the church for some time. You've heard the reference to the Bereans. Maybe you've been challenged yourself to be a Berean. And the reason you were challenged is for the very reason we see them described here and that they were individuals who were ready to receive the Word and they spent great time in it, evaluating what it was that others had taught from the Word against the Scriptures themselves to see, is, is what they're saying to me true? Is that what the Word of God actually says? They gave great attention to the Word. In fact, in the original language, it speaks of a people that were hungry, passionate for the Word of God. And so as the Word mentioned there, they were fair-minded. They were quick to receive what it was that Paul had for them. He saw a very quick impact here in this area. And of course, the challenge is, for us still today to be Bereans. For you, every Sunday when you hear me teach or Pastor Bobby or anybody else, that you go back and you align it with the Word of God. I love that in our church when we say, hey, feel free to open to this particular passage in the Word, that there are many of you that are turning the pages and going there so that you can evaluate it right as we're going through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept. It's tough to go off the rails when you're going through it that way. And so there's a great challenge to us here as we see these individuals in Berea. And as we consider this particular church that was established, this is in many respects Calvary Chapel's role coming out of the Jesus movement. There was a lot of emotion during that time. During the time of revival, you can very quickly go in the wrong direction that's fueled by emotion of the moment and the experience. And I praise God that we had some who really stayed the course to make sure that, that we saw true conversions to Jesus Christ during that time and continued to teach the Word verse by verse. And now, as Paul saw this work here, it said they moved him on again because those that were in Thessalonica, they were still angry. They weren't going to rest at the fact that Paul wasn't disrupting things there anymore. They found out he was teaching in the next synagogue over, and they were going to come and try and disrupt things there. And so they got Paul out of town. Now, Paul, when he went to Athens, was supposed to wait. He was supposed to wait for Timothy and Silas to come and join him before he began ministry. 
We don't know all the details there other than maybe Timothy at this point would say, hey, why don't you just settle down for a little bit, Paul? Why don't you just take it easy for a moment, you know? That wasn't Paul's style. It says in verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul had made his way here to Athens, and it was this great cultural and philosophical hub of the Roman Empire. The Romans, they allowed the culture of Athens to continue on because of its history, its culture, its arts. And so this was a place where the educated people were, the cultured people. And here it says that Paul's spirit was provoked. He was troubled. He was exercised. He saw what was going on. He saw the idolatry that existed within the area. He said, I have to do something about this. He was incensed by what he observed. Essentially, he couldn't hold back. He couldn't wait because he was amazed by the number of idols that were worshipped in the area. And he had to begin proclaiming the truth. And as we consider our own impact on the culture, as we look at our community, we don't even need to talk about the world. As we look at our own community today, are we provoked? Are we incensed to the extent that we say, well, I have to do something about this. I have to speak the truth. I have to share the word of God. I have to have an influence on this culture that seems to be influencing me and my family and my home more than I am it. We should be sickened by it, but far too often we become immune to it, desensitized. Some of the idol worship of the day has made its way into our own homes. We've assimilated with the culture instead of separating ourselves from it in many cases. And we should pray, Lord, give us eyes to see it, boldness to take action on it. Show us, Lord, the effects of the culture on our own lives, like Paul provoke us to action. As we see in verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? This speaks of a, it's interesting, of a bird pecking at seed. If you can kind of picture that, it's just sort of this, this guy who's just walking around, sort of like doing nothing, you know, pecking at seed, causing issues, saying things that doesn't really matter. It's a unique example that we get here. I think it's translated well. We don't want to hear really anything that this guy has to say. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, here's what we need to understand about these people. Both Epicurean and Stoics believed in a concept of God or many gods but their beliefs were not rooted in an understanding of the one true God. Epicureans believed that God or many gods were in everything, both good and evil, that the gods were involved in all of it, but that they had little bearing on them. They instead lived for pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry. Pleasure was their chief aim. Enjoy life to the fullest. Stoics believed that God was in everything as well, and they had more of a sense of duty and a desire to live a worthy life to the extent that if it were not worthy, if it didn't measure up, that suicide was then the better option. And so here you had a culture that was permeated with a concept of God, but a pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of a particular life or lifestyle that if you didn't live up to it, in some cases it was better to just take your own life. Once again, are you catching on to the similarities here? Think back to the hippie movement. Do you know that if you really study that and look at that, that much of it had its roots in Epicureanism? Is that just ironic? No. 
This is the cycle that goes through our culture on a regular basis. We are not dealing with anything new here. There's nothing new under the sun. It's a cycle that repeats. But if the culture goes through a similar cycle, can it not be revived by the truth of the Word of God that's never changing? And so here in verse 19, they bring him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what the new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. And the reality is here, some people want to hear the truth. Some people are interested. Some people just want to hear something new to have a tickling of the ears, a new idea. And we will see that some listen to Paul and, and receive it, and some do not. And that's no different than today. What we're called to do is to be faithful. Faithful in sharing it, faithful in teaching it, faithful in preaching it, and living it out. And so in verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Genius, Paul. Well done. I mean, he just led of the Spirit, identified the perfect way in order to, to begin to speak truth into their hearts. First of which, he somewhat, maybe in a roundabout way, or at least in their interpretation, complimented them. Recognized that, you know, I see that you are very religious. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you. I'm going to listen a little bit longer to what you have to say. I even noticed this, that you worship to the unknown God. And the reason behind that was that they had so many gods, they just wanted to erect one to the unknown God in case they missed anybody. This should cover it. Paul sees this and he strikes. He recognizes, you have a concept of God. You have a desire to worship. Let me proclaim to you who the unknown God is. Let me proclaim to you the God that you don't yet know. And in our culture today, in many ways, it is very religious. You know, we still hear about it. We don't hear as much, though, about atheists trying to do different things. I mean, it's out there, right? They're working at things. They're still working to tear down religious emblems and different things like that. But by and large, we have a culture that has this concept of, you believe in God? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I believe in God. But my God does this, and my God is this, and my God is that. That's what we see permeating our culture today. A culture that's worshiping everything under the sun. And we are called to be the church by proclaiming the truth to that very culture, to that very people the same way today as it has been throughout the ages. As Paul did in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul does a great job of, of beginning to proclaim to them who God is, and he'll transition to Jesus Christ. And, and here he mentions first as they were just up the road from the Parthenon, that he's saying, listen, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Well, the Jews had a temple. What's up with that? Think back to when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27 and 28. He said, but will God indeed dwell in the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. They knew. They knew the power and the magnitude of who God was. They knew he couldn't be contained within the temple, but it was their desire to create for him a place where his spirit could dwell, where they could meet with him. 
Solomon understood, as, as all of us should, that God does not dwell in temples made with hands, and the same challenge should resonate within our hearts and minds here today, that the church, though we invest in the church, though here at this very place we are in the process of renovating this building, of improving it for its purposes, and those are good. We're not going to stop doing that. We want to make sure that we have a place that effectively ministers to the needs of the body. But if for any second we start to think that it's about this, this building and the work that goes on here and here alone, then we've missed the point entirely. He goes on to say in verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He has made from one blood every nation of men. See, we are all descendants of Noah and Adam, and not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but as a population of people. And so while not necessarily Christian brothers and sisters in every case, we are offspring of God. Isn't it sad today to see how people treat one another? Isn't this a part of the very issue that's going on in our world right now? There is something very real in the racial and social inequality today that we cannot just dismiss as political. Yet we can't find the solution to those problems in anything other than Jesus Christ and the Word of God. As I look at this, I think to myself, we would do well to have some blood transfusions on a regular basis. Think about this seriously. Independent of your need for it, it should almost be, and this will sound crazy and I don't actually stand for it, but a mandatory thing. What greater way to have an understanding for someone who lives in this culture who is truly a racist individual, a discriminative individual, to be in a position where the very blood from the person that they hate would run through their veins and give them life. You know, my son James has so much blood in him from other people through the time when he was in the hospital, transfusion after transfusion. My own father, multiple transfusions and an organ donor recipient. That someone who lost their life gave life to my father. We don't know who that person is. We know nothing about them. But that's who we are as a people created by God. Yet the hatred that exists, what are we doing? What are we doing to impact that, to change that? Because no one else can but the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and, and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. We are in a time of grace and mercy where men are commanded to repent. Mankind is commanded to repent that there is going to be a judgment day. What assurance do we have of that? Because he lives. We could disregard everything in this if he didn't raise from the dead. If he didn't have victory over death, victory over the cross, then we could look at it and we could say, oh man, that was just a great story. But the reality is, is that countless prophecies throughout the Old Testament, a book written over the course of 2,000 years, 66 books, 40 authors, covered it three different languages, and it's consistent from cover to cover, and it spoke 
consistently. No doubt Paul here, as he was preaching to them, went back to Isaiah 53 and shared with them the idea that by his stripes we are healed and that he was raised from the dead. There's no other religious figure, no other self-proclaimed prophet, no other teacher out there who's raised from the dead. That's the proof that we have. That's what's given us assurance. And so he is alive. And so because of that, we must believe it. Yet some will mock this and some have. And as we read here in verses 32 and following, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Truth be told, Paul saw relatively little success here in Athens as compared to other cities that he had been in. But the measure of success is not always the number of converts, but rather the faithfulness in preaching the word. He would move on and he would take some with him. And there will always be mockers. As we seek to fulfill the Great Commission, as we seek as a church to make disciples of Christ, we must recognize that even inside, when you feel like, I don't think I have the courage to go pray at the state house today. I don't know that I want to go to the men's conference because I feel like I'm going to have to deal with some things that I don't want to deal with in my heart and my life. The enemy will talk you out of any ministry that we have here. And it's not me trying to be hard on you, but if you're sitting here today and feeling like there's just not a ministry for you, there's never going to be. What it takes is just taking that first step and saying, Lord, I'm going to trust. I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to commit myself to this. And I'm going to trust you'll open a door to different things along the way, but I'm just going to be faithful in taking that first step and being involved and going out and being bold in my faith. There will always be those who mock. They'll be there. You don't need to worry about that. What did Jesus do? Remember Jairus who came to him and said, come, my daughter is dying. You can fix this. You can heal her. And he went and he went to her house and he walked in. He said, what about that little girl? She's asleep. And what did the people do? (laughs) Ha 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 ha, this foolish guy. Everybody knows she's dead. What did he do to the mockers? He put them out. Hey, you guys, go away. Get out. And he looked at the little girl and he says, little girl, arise. See, their mocking didn't stop what it was that Jesus wanted to do. Because others believed. Others believed. Others had faith. Others trusted that what God said he was going to do, he was going to do it. So we need to get over the fear sometimes. We need to get over the fear of the mockers and everything the world is saying to us about what it is that we believe and what we want to accomplish. We need to look at our culture today. Folks, there is a work that is happening here in this church. There's no doubt about it. I hear of it on a daily basis. Just this morning in prayer, I heard testimony of the impact that's being had at Hannah House. I heard testimony of other volunteers at daybreak, you know, being able to to speak truth into lives. I saw what happened at the men's conference in the hearts of men that are here. The testimonies that we have from Community Day and so many different aspects of ministry. The Lord is doing a work here, but I want to tell you right now that it's just a glimmer. It's just a glimmer of what he can do. It's just a glimmer of it. That there would be such revival in each of our hearts that we would truly begin to lay hold of through time in the Word, through prayer, through surrender to God, allowing him to speak to our hearts regarding what he wants to do in our lives. And you know, for some of you sitting here today, you think, well, I, you know, maybe I, I can't do all of those things. Stop trying to think of that it's something so far off and so great and so huge that you'd just never be able to attain it. Because many of you are doing incredible things right where you are. You're one of those people who are serving in an incredible way. And it may be just as simple as being faithful to talking to that coworker and saying, would you come to church with me on Sunday? 
That is fulfilling the Great Commission. When I say these things, this is just about all of us being obedient to the way in which the Holy Spirit is nudging you along and saying, okay, Lord, I'll do it. There's incredible things that are happening. But we have the opportunity to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of the church as a whole, to go beyond these walls and to see God change our community. And I firmly believe that that's going to happen in some way, shape, or form. I don't know entirely what it looks like yet. I don't. It is my own prayer. It is my own heart to continue to seek after the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want from me? But as much as I love a lot of the things that we do and have done for a long time, there are certain things also that I'm sitting here saying, even now, even today, and saying, Lord, I know that's not enough. I know that's just not it. There's more. There's something more. And I want that. I want to accomplish that. I want to achieve that. I want to experience that. I don't know about any of you, but I get the sense that God is moving within the church today. There are enough pastors that I'm talking to that are wrestling and feeling like they're about to jump out of their skin about something that God wants to do. And I say, why can't he do that very thing again? Why can't what we've seen happen before happen again? There's no reason it can't. The only thing that will stand in its way is, ironically, the church, God's people, us, walking out of these doors this morning and saying, okay, that was cool, I was kind of inspired, and then we just go back to everything we always do. Just get caught up into the busyness that Satan loves oh so much because it distracts us. Do not leave today thinking that you need to go and you need to just sell everything and fly over to Africa. Listen, if the Lord tells you to do that, do that. Don't let me get in the way. The Lord speaks clearly to you. But leave here today and begin to pray. That's what I'm asking you for. Leave here today and pray. And pray and pray and pray. And be willing to pause and to rest before the Lord and to say, Lord, show me. Show me what you desire for me and for my life and for my heart. Because when you start to do that, when we all start to do that, we will see God move. We're going to place more of an emphasis on that within this church. I can tell you that. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a prayer and worship service where we will spend very intentional time in prayer, seeking the Lord. If there's anything that the Lord showed me coming out of yesterday, it was that. For the last several weeks, the Lord has been speaking to me about the importance of prayer. And he confirmed it in a big way yesterday. And so I'm asking for you all to come along with me on that journey. And let's pray and let's seek the Lord. And let's see what he will do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause here now and, and as we close and as we sing, Father, I, I pray that we would just be humbled by nothing other than you and the power of your spirit, Lord. That you, Lord, you would work in our lives, in our hearts and our minds and just humble us, Lord. Strip away anything, Lord, that is not of you. And Lord, I don't ever want to over-spiritualize things, but I am praying that, that today may in some way, shape, or form, Lord, serve as a, a bit of a turning point for some of us, Lord. That perhaps this could be the beginning of a renewed emphasis on prayer, on seeking you, Lord. And that from there, your spirit could begin to work and to do what only you can that in time, Lord, we could look back and we could say, wow, remember? Remember when we made that commitment? How the Holy Spirit just began to show up in a powerful way. Just continually seeking Him and asking that He move and work in that way, I pray. 
Father, I pray for each of these here, Lord, every single one of us, Lord, that as we follow after you, Lord, you'd guide and strengthen us in all things. For those here today, Lord, who feel particularly convicted, Lord, around the area of prayer, myself included, Lord, help us in that. Help us in that work, Lord, that we could be a praying church, that we could realize the mandate of the church, that we could realize that the fruit of such work, Lord, yes, but knowing that it starts with prayer. And so, Lord, help us in this first step of faith, Lord, to commit ourselves in that way, Lord, I ask. Move in a mighty way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.